My guest is Mark Leonard. Mark Leonard is the director and co-founder of the European Council on Foreign Relations. His latest book is called The, the Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict. First, first of all, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Um, one of the things, many things that intrigue me about your new book is that towards the end, kind of spoiler alert, you do reveal that the book you set out to write is not the book you ended up writing. So what, for the benefit of our listeners who have yet, not yet had the pleasure of reading this great book, tell me about the journey and the steps along the way where you ended up in a quite different destination. Well, thanks. Um, you're, you're quite right. I basically am a product um, of internationalism and international understanding. And my whole life has been improved and made better by that. Um, not unique in Europe, but I come from a family of, of German Jews on my mum's side and on my, my dad's earliest memories were being evacuated during the Second World War. His father fought in the First World War. So being able to, to grow up in a Europe where these big countries were at peace with each other without war, being able to travel without um, stopping at borders. And then later on, when I when I started work um, and set up a think tank, be able to recruit staff from across the continent and and think about how European countries could come together to, to solve a lot of the big problems that we face. These were all things which I, I thought of as, as li literally miraculous. That's why my first book was called Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century. It was a celebration of the, of the European model. But then in 2016, what um, I saw with the Brexit referendum and the election of Donald Trump was that many of the exact same things that I had seen bringing opportunity, security and um, joy into my life had been seen by other people in a totally different way as bringing insecurity, making them feel um, unhappy and stressed and, um, and, and above all leading to a sense that, that the world was kind of somehow out of uh, control and that things were being done to them rather than um, these things being a source of opportunity. They were a source of vulnerability. And that sort of led to um, a big process of, of sort of reflection. When I started out writing the book, I thought I would write a, a defense of the open world and celebrate uh, the sort of amazing advances, civilizational advances that connectivity has brought into our lives. But what I, what I realized as I sort of dug deeper was that the very same forces that have done so much to improve our lives and to create um, understanding are also creating conflict and in fact um the the conclusion i came to is that connectivity itself creates uh, a, an opportunity for conflict gives people a reason to and countries to fight each other but above all it's created a whole series of weapons which countries are using to inflict pain on one another and that therefore the big contest of the future isn't so much one between open and closed worlds but more about how we can manage togetherness so that people don't feel that it's something which is uh, leaving them behind, which is doing them real damage so that you can actually um, take some of the, the risks out of it. And I, I then th therefore sort of ended up trying to understand how connectivity um, is changing international politics and domestic politics and our everyday lives and, and what we can do to survive it. Well, to be fair, uh, unlike many books uh, in this broad area, 
which are very strong on diagnosis, but not so strong on, say, remedies and solutions. Yours does that towards the end. But before we come to your kind of suggested solutions to these, these issues that you, you, you analyze in the book, let's, let's start a bit with the diagnosis. It seems that you, you've spotted what the issues are, but they're, they're fundamentally, aren't they, in contradiction. You say the connections that knit the world together are also driving it apart. Great power politics, these are your words, not mine, obviously, has become like a loveless marriage where the couple can't stand each other's company, but are unable to get in it divorced. So again and again, you come back to the theme that the world is hyper-connected these days, but it is almost, uh, while you're doing the diagnosis, before you come to your solutions, I mentioned earlier, you talk about almost the, the inevitability that these, that these relationships are there, and it's not, they're not easily undone. Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, um, what I've come to realize is that that in when people thought about international relations, on the one hand, you had the sort of so-called realists who said that competition between countries for power, for glory, for opportunity is intrinsic to human nature and to the international system. And therefore, if you don't see uh, international politics is this kind of competition to be number one um you will not understand it and they therefore have a kind of model of international relations as often seen as a series of billiard balls that kind of bash against each other and the and that's the way that they sort of understand it on the other hand you've had liberal internationalists who say that that's a totally wrong way of thinking about about international relations that what we need to do is look at the connections which bind us together and see interdependence as something which can actually uh, transcend the, the divisions between different countries and create a, a sense of harmony between them. Because um, when you get countries uh, closely bound together through trade, through travel, through the Internet, through other things, they will therefore have a lot to lose if they fall out with each other and if they go to war with each other and that their international relations therefore um, uh, should create peace and harmony. And what I sort of uh, believe now is that both are, are, are right and both are wrong. So the, the um, realists are right that competition is hardwired into the system. If you look at the world today, it's very difficult not to, to see how um, much international politics is defined by this competition between China and America to be number one, between um, Europe and, and Russia and Turkey to, to set the rules for the European security order, etc. But at the same time, it's totally wrong to think that you have these sort of self-contained countries that, mm. that, that um, can bounce against each other like billiard balls because we're so interconnected that... Um, you know, people even came up with a single word to define the, the enormous economy that grew around China and America, Chimerica, because um, their financial systems, their, their manufacturing, um, their technology was completely intertwined with one another. And if you put those two things together, what we're seeing is that that you both have incredible levels of, of interdependence and, and uh, which are greater than any time in in history. Some people compare it to the late 19th century, but I think it's much, much bigger now just because of the, the fact that it goes right down to the level of individuals. Every single person in the world is, is kind of bound to other people in a way that they, you know, that our ancestors were not even before the First World War. 
I just wonder when you were uh, doing all the research and you've been literally around the whole world talking to people uh, as part of your research, you, you, you keep coming back to this kind of essential uh, uh, conundrum, if you like, or intractable uh, problem, which is, that, as you say, I'm quoting your words back at you, because I'm very good at doing that. In a connected world, we have no option but to work together to solve problems like climate change. And then you go on to say, but the forces binding people together have become battlegrounds. You come back to that theme again and again and again in the book, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's exactly what you uh, what i was getting at with the metaphor you mentioned beforehand about international politics being like a marriage where yeah. in a marriage it's the things which bring you together in the good times which become the ways that you hurt each other in the bad times so in a marriage it's about who gets the holiday home who gets custody <laughs> of the pet dog who gets the children and that's how the couple end up punishing each other. But in geopolitics, it's all the points of contact which bind us together. So it's trade where it's no longer about trying to work out uh, just how we can reduce friction and, and improve opportunities for, for consumers. There's a huge amount of energy taken up with discussions about sanctions regimes shutting countries out of the global financial system, restricting their access to technology, to, to particular resources. The same is true of um, the other things which bind us together. If you look at, um, at technology, you know, you're now seeing the relationship between Huawei and Google breaking down universities, expelling Chinese researchers in the US because they don't want to, to work together anymore. You're seeing the same sort of things going on with the, the internet, where rather than creating a global village, people are talking about a splinter net and, and mm -hmm. cyber attacks. And even migration, the free movement of people has been turned into a weapon. We saw very recently how the Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko was encouraging refugees to, to come to, uh, to Belarus from Iraq and Syria so that he could then force them over the border into, into Poland and Lithuania to put pressure on the government. And that's something which wasn't a particularly original tactic. There have been over 70 cases of, of, of governments using that sort of coercive engineered migration to undermine other countries. President Erdogan has used that several times to extract things from the European Union. The Moroccans did it against the Spanish um, last year as well. So what you're seeing is all these different things which were meant to be bringing us together, in fact, being turned into into to, to weapons to hurt one another. And that's possible because we have this level of interdependence. It, the, the Soviet Union and the United States of America couldn't do that to one another because they had almost no contact with one another. There was literally an iron curtain that split right. the, 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 the two big superpowers at that time. But now we're, we're completely bound up with one another. And therefore, seeing a lot of these fit these relationships being turned into weapons. Right. But isn't there, again, a slight illogicality or certainly a paradox in all this? Because if there is, and that you've expressed it very clearly so far, that if there's an overarching theme to your book, a fil rouge, it's the what you call the weaponization of interdependence, that it is kind of suicidal, no? that just because regions, countries, great economic powers can do it, they aren't, that in many ways, they're hurting themselves as much as the perceived enemy, quote unquote. Well, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. I think one of the things which we've had to come to terms with is the fact that not all interdependence is the same. Right. So we had a sort of mental image, particularly in Europe, because the European Union has been such an extraordinary success. And that was based on this idea that if you start with the coal and steel which 
France and Germany used to make weapons to kill each other and you create a common community out of them, uh, then um, you can turn enemies into friends. And so you go from coal and steel and you create a, a customs union, a single market, a single currency. But actually, when you start looking at relationships in a more complicated way, and you look at network theory, because what we're talking about is a sort of mm -hmm. hyper-networked world, you realize that often um, relationships can be unbalanced. So one side needs the other uh, side more. And in those situations, the relationship can open you up to, to blackmail. We saw that uh, 15 years ago when Russia started using energy to bully the right. Baltic states. And we then sort of realized that the solution wasn't to cut ourselves off from Russia, but it was to make sure that we had a functioning energy market. So if Russia cuts off um, you know, Estonia or Lithuania, they can get energy from other sources so that they're not able to be blackmailed in the way that they were beforehand. And that's um, uh, qu quite a different way of thinking about, about connectivity and about relationships where you don't simply think that all connectivity is going to, to to help and you need to hedge and not just go for the kind of lowest prices but make sure that you're thinking about you know people say now that you have to think about just in case as well as just in time when it comes to supply chains right well i say as i said before the the book does cover the entire world um but a large chunk of the book is devoted to obviously to technology since the theme is connectivity and the, the conflict between between china and, and america uh, but as a segue maybe to bring in the European Union, or at least uh, Western Europe, into all this discussion, you say also the big question in many European countries is whether to align with America or try to stay neutral. And you also go on to say, which I also found very intriguing, the US and China are becoming more alike. So for a European country, member state, big or small, uh, how would you advise them to approach the, the being slightly squeezed in the middle discussion currently taking place between the US and China? I, you know, I've done a lot of work with, um, with colleagues at the European Council on Foreign Relations for the last few years on the idea of European sovereignty. And the idea there is essentially about trying to organize ourselves so that we're not um, forced to, to choose sides based on what other people want, but instead to, that we have a clear idea about what European interests are and then we organize ourselves so that we can defend those interests and that will often be done by working with the United States because they are um, you know our closest partner they share many values with us but our interests don't always completely coincide with with US interests and we need to be able to 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 carry on pursuing them when they don't um, align with the US when the US is either not interested in in getting involved because uh, it, you know it's too busy in other parts of the world, which is you know one of the messages that's coming out around the Ukraine crisis that they're expecting Europeans to take more responsibility for this because their big concern is about pivoting towards the Indo-Pacific, and they're very frustrated with Europeans who make lots of demands on the US, um, but don't seem to be offering enough either to, to defend the, the European security order that we have at the moment or, or to revise it. Um, so, if, you know, there's both questions where the US isn't, is not as interested as we are, and, but there are also questions where our, our views will differ. We saw that when Donald Trump was in the White House and he decided to cancel the Iran nuclear deal. And European companies like Total and uh, Airbus, which mm. had signed big contracts with Iran, ended up, 
having to 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 withdraw um even though the us was actually breaking international law this was an international treaty which the government had signed which was being kind of broken so um my sort of feeling is that we have i think increasingly geopolitics is going to be a, a contest between these three big empires of connectivity the us china and the european union and if the european union gets its act together then it will be able to to be one of the shapers of this world because we still have a large economy we have lots of connections with other parts of the world we fall down at the moment because we're not really thinking geopolitically and we sometimes uh, aren't organized in order to use the assets that we have in order to to shape the world that that we're in but i think that we have come quite a long way in the last couple of years and that this whole debate about european sovereignty in fact is a, a much more um subtle uh way of thinking about connectivity we're moving from a position where we thought that globalization was always going to be good where the, the more connections we had with other players the, the stronger we would be the more peace there'd be towards thinking about how do we organize those connections so that we can protect the losers in our own societies from the downsides of it um and also um that we can um turn these connections into into influence or in support of our values and our interests as well. well as i said earlier before we finish the podcast i do want to ask you to to address briefly the, the the remedies or the ideas you have to kind of address these issues that we're discussing so far but before we do that a brief detour i cannot have this podcast without asking you about the ukraine situation as you know not to tease you people like yourself but you know foreign security policy experts gurus the think tank world thought leaders like to say that warfare now has moved on the 21st century it's hybrid it's a mixture of cyber warfare it's a disinformation and the military side is very much last century but we have as we speak the, the very real prospect of a conventional warfare on the continent of Europe if Russia were to invade Ukraine how do you how do you think things are going to pan out that you have any kind of insights to how you think the next days and weeks will will pan out Well, I'm not um uh able to get into Putin's brains. So I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to do, but we spent a lot of time talking to people in um in the white uh, well, me and my colleagues, people at the highest levels in the US administration, people in Moscow, people in different European countries and you know, I think people are right to be very worried about it, but I do think in some ways it's an illustration of my core thesis because though military power is part of what's being talked about it's actually I think largely uh, a political um uh set of goals which Vladimir Putin has um which is to revise the the European security order and he's using all the tools that he can to advance that goal and you know in the in the last few weeks we've seen um him using you know gas as a lever over different countries so using these kind of connections with different places there's um uh, you know no he's been weaponizing migration by you know the what he's been doing with with Belarus there've been cyber attacks on on Ukraine um so all of the different battlegrounds I'm talking about will figure in this and the ultimate challenge is not going to be a sort of military conflict like the first world war or the second world war it's largely going to be a sort of full spectrum com- competition where you know on the one hand the russians are trying to increase pressure on the west to get them to make concessions that we've not been willing to make for a long time concessions both about 
the order within Ukraine and what happens with Ukraine and whether Ukraine joins NATO or not and mm. how much military support Ukraine gets, but also about the whole post-Cold War security architecture, which they're very unhappy about and have been trying to, to get us to, to revise for a long time. And, and that's been resisted by, by people in the West. And on the other hand, the US and Europe are trying to influence Putin by threatening him with negative consequences, the most devastating of which are not military. They are, in fact, sanctions. It's shutting Russian banks out of the global financial system, kicking Russia out of SWIFT, ending Nord Stream. These are the big sort of tools that they're talking about. And to the extent that military means are being used, they are, uh, I think, subordinate to those economic threats which are being made against um, uh, um, Putin. The hope also is, is of also weaponizing Russian public opinion against it. So in the US, they often talk about a porcupine strategy where you give Ukraine enough weapons so that they become so um, aggressive at fighting back that they're difficult for, the, for, for Russia to digest. And, you know, in a way that they're making a parallel with, with what happened to the Russians in, when they had went to war with Afghanistan, that it ended up being too costly that they and, and, and kind of destructive to them. I don't really know what's going to happen in the long run. My hunch is that you're not going to see Russian troops moving into Kiev, um, uh, that this is um, that you'll have, you know, some more limited incursion and that what he's trying to do is to use his military power to extract political concessions. But, uh, you know, I could be wrong. Lots of people have been very wrong about Russian intentions uh, beforehand. Um, I um, see, you know, a lot of echoes of what happened back in 2008 with the, the war in Georgia. And I think people are, are right to take this very seriously. I think that it is a tragedy that, all of this is going on and that Europeans are so completely absent from uh, from the tables where decisions are made. But I think that's largely a, 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 a weakness of their own making, because on the one hand, we don't look like we're willing to, to defend the, the order. It's not European troops that are going to be mm. fighting back against uh, against Russia. Very few Europeans are even willing to to, to arm the, uh, the the Ukrainians. And on the other hand, we've all been dragging our feet when it comes to discussions about the future European security order. We said that the current one works fine. We just need to 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 enforce it and implement it more. But the the US is desperate to shift its attention from Europe and the Middle East to this competition in the Indo-Pacific. And Biden is, you know, afraid of looking weak and wants to make sure that you that American security guarantees mean something. But at the same time, I think is increasingly frustrated with, with Europeans for not offering enough either to, to back up the existing order or to show flexibility about, about revising it. And I, I suspect the danger for Europeans is that you end up with one of two bad scenarios, which is a war in Europe, which is would be terrible, much worse for us than for the US, because we're the ones who will see our gas from Russia cut off and see refugees showing up on our borders, or a kind of Yalta II um, revision of the European security order done over our heads, which um, is also not a, a, a good outcome. And the clock is ticking and you see relatively little evidence of European countries coming together and, and trying to work out uh, a third way between those two very negative scenarios where um, we use the, the leverage that we could have over 
both Washington and um, uh, Moscow to, to try and get a better outcome. Right. Well, finish the detour. Uh, to finish off the, the, the conversation, Mark, let's go back to the book. Uh, and as I said earlier, you, you do, unlike many books, uh, you don't just have a diagnosis. You also have, a, have some suggestions, some remedies, even to, to, to address the, the, the situation you describe. As a prep for that part of the final part of our discussion, you do say towards the end of the book, my final quote back to you. <laughs> if we continue on our current trajectory of greater connectivity, greater comparison and greater competition, we risk entering an age of perpetual conflict, not officially at war, but never at peace, in which no one can remember the origins of our disagreements. But you, as I said earlier, you have this five-stage five program, if you like, five-step program. So my sort of starting point is that what we need is not a new architecture for a, for a connected world order, but rather therapy so that we can actually live together without killing each other. And I developed this five-step program. And the first step, as with all therapy programs, is, is recognizing that there's a problem. Right. The second step is, is about trying to work out how you can have um, healthy boundaries. Paradoxically, if you want to bring people together, you need to make interdependence and connectivity feel safe again. And the way to do that is to address the losers of that, whether people are worried about migration or inequality or jobs and, and work out how to, to make it feel safer. Because unless you have boundaries which people trust, they're going to want to build walls, as we saw in the Brexit referendum and, and with Trump. The third um, step is about being realistic, being about, realistic what about what you can control. And I think there, um, what we need to do is to, to focus on the areas which we can do something about. Um, if we basically want to have our way right ac across the board you could end up with every point of contact with other countries becoming a, a site of, of systemic rivalry that's the phrase we talk about a lot when we talk about the Chinese and the fourth step is about um, self-help um, I think that you know there are all sorts of dangers of people interfering in our internal affairs election interference sanctions etc but the biggest threats to the open society tend to come from uh, from our own politics you know it, brexit was something which was which was homemade trump was a homemade phenomenon marine le pen um, and eric zemmour are, are homemade right. so you need to to have education policies you need to have welfare policies industrial policies which make the country kind of strong and safe and those are the sorts of countries which are least likely to to, to revolt against uh, interdependence and the final question is about how you can give people a sense that uh, of, of, of agency over what's going on and to make sure that you get real consent for what what's being done and i think that's the the biggest challenge that the light motif of politics everywhere is about taking back control because people feel that they've lost control and that they haven't given consent to what's going on and that poses quite big questions for the future of our democracies this has been absolutely fascinating, Mark, and we have to leave it there, but thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul. It was great talking to you.